Well, everybody is familiar with the saying, your body is a temple, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But I think most people interpret that to mean something quite different from what the Apostle Paul originally intended. Most people probably assume that that means that your body is sacred and therefore you need to take supremely good care of it in terms of health and wellness. So let me give you an example. Consider Equinox, the luxury fitness club. Equinox calls itself not a mere gym, but a temple of well-being. And some have even referred to it as a church, a church where people do not gather together in order to worship some transcendent deity, but rather to worship the self. One of the most recent ads that Equinox put out features the mythical character of Narcissus, the person who fell in love with his own reflection. But rather than telling the story as a kind of cautionary tale against self-absorption, this advertisement lifts Narcissus up as a role model for the 21st century. This is someone whom we should emulate. So in Equinox's telling, Narcissus was committed to perfecting every inch of his body. And the voiceover states, he would persist until self-worship turned him into a gift. A gift not just for him to treasure, but a gift that brought the whole world pleasure. And in this video, you see people, including children, gawking at the figure of Narcissus. And the ad ends with this final caption, make yourself a gift to the world. And so the message seems to be that if you look like a Greek god, with chiseled abs and bulging biceps, well then you will make the world a better place. But I'm sorry, I think that a person who is obsessed with their own image is not a gift to anyone except perhaps to the luxury gym that is making bank off of his membership dues. The Instagram uh, account for Equinox uh, posts this statement, self-worship makes us healthier, more whole, better versions of ourselves. One step for each of us leads us to a better path for all of us. But in fact, I think the opposite is true. Self-worship distorts our humanity and it makes us more insular, worse versions of ourselves. Well, it's Halloween, so I can say that I found this video to be rather creepy. It's a little bit disturbing, especially in the way that it uses children. But this kind of advertising must resonate with someone, right? or else they wouldn't do this. Equinox obviously is a very popular brand when it comes to fitness. So how do we account for that? Well, there's one writer who describes himself as an Equinox fan, and he's a millennial, so he writes as a millennial. And he says this is why he's so supportive of the Equinox chain. He says millennials demonstrate success through their lifestyle, not material possessions. The rise of social media gives us an outlet to broadcast our lives. People don't go to social media to see what their friends own. It's not about material possessions. No, people follow their friends and influencers to see what they're doing and what they stand for. So in addition to the boost in physical appearance that frequenting the gym offers, belonging to Equinox says that you're deeply committed to health. It makes you cool. And that's related to his second point, which is that health is now a status symbol. The rise of health as a status symbol is a byproduct of the view millennials have towards health. On average, 
boomers and Gen Xers define health as not being sick. That's probably my definition, not being sick or having appropriate height, weight, proportion. But millennials have a different perception of what it means to be healthy with a bigger focus on day-to-day -day routine, living an active lifestyle, eating well, and taking care of their minds. And then he makes this one final point. Why is he so drawn to Equinox? Well, it has to do with the need for new communities. As the world becomes more secular, younger generations will find new ways to foster community and friendship. For hundreds of years, humanity has turned to the church and their neighbors for these ubiquitous human desires. With the rise of globalization and urban migration, cities are increasingly diverse, crowded, and secular. Taking inspiration from its subsidiary Soul Cycle, Equinox is adding fitness classes and meetups to build stronger ties between its members. So it's clear that many people have transformed the pursuit of health and wellness into a new religion where the gym becomes the temple where you gather and your God becomes your own body that you worship. And the group class filled with committed devotees is the place where you form friendship and find community. And so health becomes a, dis a defining aspect of one's identity. It's not just something that you do, it's who you are. And that's actually related to Equinox's motto. It's not fitness. It's life. It's not just something you do, it's who you are. And many people are devoted to this enterprise with cult-like zealousness and religious-like fanaticism. Now, I'm not knocking Equinox. There was someone after the uh, first service who said, oh, I guess I have to give up my gym membership now. Uh, that's not the point. I was a member of Equinox at one point in the past. And Paul himself spoke approvingly in 1 Corinthians 9 about the importance of disciplining the body. To this day, I still work out on a regular basis, so that's not the issue. But the point here is that we are a long way away, a long way away from what the Apostle Paul first meant when he said that your body is a temple. And so what I'd like us to do is to try to figure out, well, what does Paul actually mean by that, by taking a closer look at 1 Corinthians 3 as well as 1 Corinthians 6. And so today we'd like to consider, well, what is a temple? How do you become a temple? And why does it matter? So if you'd like, you can open up a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is found on page 953 in the Pew Bibles. Or you can follow along in the bulletin. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verse 16 through 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. 
Well, as we've seen over the last several weeks, Paul is writing a letter to the church in the Greek city of Corinth, which he had previously founded. And he had spent 18 months investing in the church in that locale. But then after he moved on to Ephesus, he receives a rather troubling report that this church that he had worked so hard to build is now in danger of collapse. And so, rather than functioning as a healthy, united organization centered around the person of Jesus, people have divided into groups. They've aligned themselves with different leaders. They're forming cliques within the congregation. And they're doing really whatever they wanted. In some cases, they thought they were helping the situation, but in fact, they were tearing the church apart because they were abusing God's gifts and the freedom that they thought they had in Christ to live and do and say whatever they wanted. And as a result, the church was being torn apart. Now, what's interesting about the church in Corinth and what sets it apart from so many of the other churches that the apostles write to in the New Testament is that the church in Corinth was not fundamentally facing external opposition. No, the threat to the church in Corinth was internal division. It stood in danger of crumbling from within. And so the Apostle Paul dashes off this letter from the city of Ephesus in order to try to set things straight. And so at the beginning of our passage today, he says in verse 16, do you not know? Do you not know? And in fact, he repeats this expression 10 times in this one letter. So it seems that the issue is one of ignorance. Either these Christians in Corinth have forgotten something or they never learned it in the first place. And so he asked them, do you not know that you are God's temple? So if you want to understand what Paul is driving at here, you have to understand what a temple is. So what is a temple? Well, probably the most simple definition would be to say a temple is a place where people gather to worship. And that's right. But the temple actually means far, far more within the Old Testament scriptures. So you could think of the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet. Now, we tend to think of heaven and earth as two different locations. We usually think of heaven as some ethereal place up away above the clouds, and earth is this ordinary place down here below. But it's better to think of heaven and earth not as two different locations, but rather two different dimensions that overlap and intersect in different ways within the one same created order that God has made. So very simply, heaven is God's space. It's the place where God dwells, and earth is human space. It's where human beings dwell. So these are two dimensions of the one reality, one unseen, one seen. And a temple is simply a place where heaven and earth come together, where they are one, where God dwells in the midst of his people. So if that's what a temple is, then what does it mean to be a temple? Because Paul says, do you not know that you are, you are God's temple? So how do you become a temple? Well, in many ways, I could retell The whole story of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, centered around the theme of the temple. So here, I'll do it. I'm going to give you a summary of the Bible from the beginning to end around the theme of the temple. 
In the very beginning, what does God do? He creates the heavens and the earth. And heaven and earth overlap and intersect. They are one. Human beings have unhindered access to God. When God first creates the world, he sets human beings in a garden. And the whole earth is filled with his presence. There's nothing hindering their access to God. I love this evocative statement from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, if God is a spirit, how do you hear him walking? I don't know. But it's such a wonderfully evocative statement. There's nothing hindering their relationship with God, and therefore, human beings could hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But as soon as human beings rebel and turn their backs on God, alienation sets in. Now we are alienated in our relationship with God, which means that now heaven and earth no longer overlap. They are no longer one. Where there was once unity and harmony, now there is division and separation. But God is on a mission to bring heaven and earth back together again. And we get the first glimpses of that mission in Genesis 3. And one of the ways in which we know that God is going to bring heaven and earth back together again is because he gives us the temple. So the temple is meant to be a sign of God's future promise. And then this comes through the book of Exodus. God rescues his people from their bondage and oppression in Egypt. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai where he not only gives them the Ten Commandments to instruct them in how to live their lives in response to his grace, but then he also gives them instructions for how to build a portable temple, a tabernacle. And then eventually this portable temporary temple will become a permanent temple in Jerusalem. And so the temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap and intersect once more. It's the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. God says that he will dwell in the most holy of holies, in the inner sanctuary. And so even though sin has alienated human beings from God, God still will be in the midst of his people. And that will be the one place where heaven and earth continue to overlap. But that temple was always meant to be a symbol pointing beyond itself to something greater. Now, if you pay attention to the details in terms of how the interior of the temple is described, it's actually quite striking because you realize that all the carved imagery and furniture within the temple would have been evocative of flowers and trees. There's almond flowers and lilies, closed buds and open blossoms. There's plant trees, uh, palm trees and pomegranates. And so what's the idea here? It's obviously very deliberate and intentional. And so the thought is that when you stepped into the temple, it would be like you were stepping into a garden. The temple was meant to be evocative of a garden, which means that the temple was supposed to be a microcosm of the whole world. It's not as if the temple was just this little slice of heaven plopped down on earth, but rather the temple was meant to give us a picture of God's ultimate purpose, which is to fill the whole world, the whole creation, the whole earth with his presence and his love. So the temple was always this sign, this symbol pointing beyond itself to something more, a promise of what God would do in the ultimate future. But as is so often the case, people mistake the sign for the thing signified. 
So you know what this would be like. This would be like going all the way out west to the Grand Canyon. But when you arrive on the outskirts of the Grand Canyon, you stay fixated on the sign that tells you the Grand Canyon is this way. And the only thing you ever do is look at the sign pointing to the Grand Canyon rather than taking in the beauty of the canyon itself. And you see, that was the problem in Jesus' day, is most people mistook the temple as an end in itself rather than really a means to an end, something that was pointing beyond itself to a greater reality. And so that's why when Jesus begins his ministry, he declares that he is the true temple. Jesus, in his own person, is the ultimate temple, the place where heaven and earth come together, where they meet, where they overlap and intersect, where they are one, because Jesus is fully God and fully human. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus in bodily form. And that's why he can go on to say that through him he will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus not only embodies the fullness of God and therefore is the place where heaven and earth come together perfectly, but through his work on the cross, he reconciles heaven and earth in order to bring them together again. And that's why Jesus famously said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now at the time, people thought that Jesus was out of his mind because they thought he was talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. And they said it took us 46 years to build that temple. Do you really think that you could rebuild it after it is destroyed in three days? But Jesus, of course, was talking about the temple of his body. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, following his crucifixion, his disciples remembered that he had said these words and they realized what he meant, that he was talking about the temple of his body because Jesus is the true temple. And then if you scroll to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation 21, you see a glimpse of the future world that God has promised. And there the seer, John, realizes that God's goal for humanity is not to take us up and away from this world and to carry us into heaven, but rather to bring the life of heaven down on earth in order to renew all things. John sees the new Jerusalem, the holy city, descending out of heaven from God. And the heavenly life that God has promised makes all things new. And this new creation, this new world that God has promised is not a return to some primeval garden, but rather it's a movement forward to a city, the holy city, with a garden at its center. So that's the future that God has promised. But here's the curious thing. You would think that when heaven and earth come together again in the form of a holy city, that this city would be chock full of temples, There'd be a temple on every corner so that everyone, everywhere, would be worshiping God. But John deliberately tells us in 21, verse 22, he saw no temple. He saw no, te no temple there. So what's with that? Why would there not be a temple in God's holy city? Well, John explains it. I saw no temple there because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. 
You see, there's no need for a temple because now God has filled the whole creation with his presence, his power, and his love. Now God has brought heaven and earth fully and finally together so that nothing is hindering our access to God. God is present always and everywhere. There's no need for a temple. And then that is why John hears a voice telling him that the dwelling place of God is now with human beings. God will dwell with his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. So there you go. I did it. The whole Bible in six minutes centered around the theme of the temple. But here's the best part. You don't have to wait for that day. You don't have to wait for that moment when God brings the life of heaven to renew all things on earth because you can experience it now. You can experience a little taste of what God has in store for all of us now. And that's what Paul is talking about. If you are a Christian, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, then the very moment that you put your faith in him, God's spirit dwells within you. The very God of the universe comes and dwells within you, makes his home within you, which transforms you into a temple. Now you are a place where heaven and earth come together, where they overlap and intersect because now God is dwelling in you through the power and presence of his spirit. So you become a mini temple and you can experience God's future blessings in your life now and your own life becomes a sign of what God has promised for all of creation in the middle of history. God's spirit dwells within you, filling you with his power, his perspective, and his presence. Now that is awe-inspiring. I mean, that is incredible. We human beings can become a temple of God himself. God dwells within us through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and yet... We take that for granted. We take it for granted and we forget all about it. And we go about living our lives as if nothing has changed and nothing is different. And that's why Paul says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you are God's temple? This changes everything. God's spirit dwells within you and that's what makes you holy. Now that doesn't mean sinless. God is not saying that as soon as he dwells within you that you no longer have sin in your life. We all know that's not true. But to be holy means to be set apart for God's special purposes. It means that God has made you the object of his love. To be holy simply means to be devoted to God. That is who you are. God has devoted you to himself, but that's also who you are to become. You are supposed to live out that new identity. You are supposed to live into that holiness. You are devoted to God. Now, live that way. So here's the all-important question. So what? God has made us many temples where he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. Well, Paul is concerned that we can forget this stunning truth, or perhaps we never knew it in the first place. So why does this matter? Well, there are massive implications for what it means to be God's temple, both personally and corporately. So let me take the personal first. Now, in this particular passage, the word, the word you is plural. 
Paul is addressing the church as a whole. But there's also a very personal aspect to this, which comes clear in chapter 6 of this same letter, when Paul asks a similar question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So that's where we get this saying, your, your body is a temple. Do you not know that your body, and that's singular, Paul's talking about you, your physical body. Do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And there, that's plural. So he's addressing the church as a whole. This is true of all Christians. Now, Paul is not saying that your body is a temple and therefore you should worship yourself. Nor is Paul saying that because you are a temple, you should offer yourself as a gift to the world. No, he has something more specific in mind in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, I have to say that the ancient Greek city of Corinth has a lot in common with the modern city of New York. And one of the issues in Corinth is that people believe that if God relates to us on the basis of grace, well, then that means we can do whatever we want. They figured, well, if if God accepts me, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me, well, then that's a great deal because then I I can do whatever I want. And specifically, they were confused when it came to sex. So they said, well, if I'm free in Christ, well, that means that I can have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want, as long as there's mutual consent and no one gets hurt. And that sounds very modern, doesn't it? But that was what was going on in Corinth. And so the Christians in Corinth thought that the biblical sexual ethic was too restrictive. They figured it's not really a big deal. If God accepts us on the basis of grace, then God doesn't care who I sleep with. But Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. Yes, God relates to us on the basis of grace. He accepts us not because of who we are or anything we've ever done or will do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. But if you think that God's grace gives you license to do whatever you want, then you haven't understood it at all. Because God's grace always leads to a transformed life. So Paul says, because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, because God has made you holy, because he has devoted you to himself, any form of sexual intimacy outside the context of a permanent and exclusive covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is out of bounds. It's out of bounds, Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul uses this Greek word pornea, which is the root for our English word pornography, but he's talking about far more than simply illicit images. The Greek word pornea was a technical term, and it applied to any and all sexual intimacy, real or imagined, that took place outside the context of a permanent and exclusive covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It was that specific. And so Paul is saying that anything outside of that context of marriage is out of bounds for the Christian. He goes on to say that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, what we do with our bodies matters because if you're a Christian united to Christ, if you have his spirit dwelling within you, then whatever you do with your body affects Christ. 
So Christ cares quite a bit about what you do with your body because it's a part of him. But this is yet one more place where the Corinthians failed to think things through from the standpoint of the cross. And this is why I've been saying that you never grow out of the cross and move on to some more advanced teaching or form of discipline. No, you grow deeper into the cross and all of its implications for our lives. Because here's the logic. Paul says in verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see the logic of the cross here? He's saying Jesus went to the cross for you in your place as your substitute, and he paid the ultimate price, his life, in order to rescue you, in order to rescue you from the down drag of sin, in order to free you from sinful patterns of thought and behavior. And therefore, you're not your own. He's redeemed you at the cost of his very own blood. You're not your own. You belong to him. And therefore, glorify God in your body. So there are massive personal implications for what it means to be God's temple, but then there's also corporate implications as well. And that's the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 3. Here he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And the you there is plural. God's spirit not only dwells within you as an individual, but also within us, the local church, the congregation. So every local church, without exception, that is centered on the person of Jesus becomes a temple of God's Holy Spirit. God dwells in our midst. Isn't that not awesome? This is what Jesus meant when he said, whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. God dwells in our midst by his spirit corporately as a community. And that is why we have to be so very careful about how we live in community with one another. So what was the presenting issue in Corinth? Well, the church in Corinth was an absolute mess. It was being torn apart by dysfunction and by infighting because there were some very gifted leaders who thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought they were trying to make things better, improve things. But in the end, they were actually causing the church to crumble from within because they were being divisive and therefore destructive. They criticized the Apostle Paul and his gospel message as being inadequate and insufficient. They said that Paul was a weak stick and his gospel was too basic, too simplistic. They wanted deeper stuff. They wanted to take everybody into the deep end of the pool. But Paul says, no, they... they uh, they might have thought that they were doing the right thing, but they were making things worse. Now, what's striking about this is that Paul never says these people were not Christians. You know, the issue in other churches and other places was with false teaching or false teachers, but not here. He never says that they're not Christians. No doubt they were very sincere and very devoted in their faith, but their ministry, and that's how they saw it, but their ministry was divisive and destructive. That's why Paul says, you're destroying God's temple in verse 17. But how could that be? How could they be so misguided? 
And the answer in verse 18 is because they were deluded. Let no one deceive himself. The prophet Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And the fact is, it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves, to think we're on the right side, and then we find out we're on the wrong side. So what do you do about that? How do you avoid that? Well, Paul goes on to say, beginning at verse 18, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in human beings. Fundamental problems that people were causing all this division by creating cliques within the community centered around certain leaders saying, well, I belong to this person, not that person. I'm siding with this person, not that person. But Paul says, if you're truly wise, you know you've always got more to learn. If you think you're wise, well then, trust me, you're not. But if you know that you're not wise, if you know you still have so much to learn, well then you're on the right path. If you're open, if you're humble, if you're teachable, then you're on the path to true wisdom. And so what does Paul want us to see here? Well then, rather than trying to side with certain people against others, we have to realize that God gives leaders to the church for all of us. No one person belongs to us rather than them. No, he's given all the leaders of the church for us to learn from. And therefore, if you are in Jesus, you have everything you need. In this world as well as in life or in death, in the present or in the future, Paul says, all are yours. Everything is yours. You don't need to be jockeying for position and creating friction in your relationships. But more importantly, not only do Paul or Apollos or whatever other leaders belong to you, but you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So quit playing these games and keep your heart and your mind focused on the things that matter. Now what Paul is showing us here is that the only way to solve any problem in the Christian life is by centering it on the cross. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Jesus has redeemed you at the cost of his own blood. You're not your own. You belong to him. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But it's not just about the personal. It's also about the corporate. You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells within you. And therefore, remember who you are. Live out the unity that you already have in Christ who has, again, shed his blood for us in order to make us one. We are God's temple. In us, personally and corporately, heaven and earth have come together. And we give the world around us a sign of what the future world God has promised will be like. So let's live out the identity that we have received as a gift of his grace, both in our individual lives and as a church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this central defining image of the temple and all that it conveys. And we pray that we would not forget, but we would remember this towering truth that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that you, by your grace, dwell in our midst. 
that we are many temples where heaven and earth come together. And so give us the grace and the power to live that way. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.